This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. We started a conversation last week about what's going on with Israel, with Hamas, and with the end, and answered these three questions, who and what is Hamas, what does Hamas want, and what is the history of Palestinians and the land of Israel? Those were the three that we covered last week, so if you weren't here, highly recommend that you go back and listen to that. We just, we don't have time to cover that uh, today, but go back and listen to it. Before we dive into this, I... <laughs> I wonder if if I were to ask you the question, the UN Security Council, (laughs) I almost twitched thinking about you saying that. Uh, How many resolutions would you guess that they have issued against Israel, condemning Israel in just 2022 alone? The answer, 15 condemnation of Israel and the UN Security Council in just 2022, if you go back year after year after decade, that number is actually in the hundreds, okay? Now, play along with me, because you might, oh, maybe they know something I don't know, right? I mean, COVID, for instance, they crushed that, didn't they? (laughs) Um, North Korea, how many do you suppose the UN Security Council, how many times do you suppose they have issued a a condemnation of North Korea? Well, the answer is actually one. I know, right? But it's North Korea, rocket man. You understand, like, the dude is killing people in his, and he gets one condemnation. Iran, who has held American hostages, European hostages for years, their abuse of their people is horrible. They've had one condemnation from the UN Security Council. I could keep going, but when you get to the Palestinian, the PLO, how many condemnations do you suppose the UN Security Council has had against PLO? That answer, zero. So, you have to ask yourself the question, what is going on? And I would like to present to you this morning that this is not just the stupidity of world nations, that this is actually a demonic force, principalities and powers behind the scenes that we're facing. This is not of this world. This is absolute insanity. So when you see, remember what we say, you see paradox, that's God. Did he choose me? Did I choose him? That's God, that's paradox. When you see delusion, when you see madness, that is Satan. And anti-Semitism is Satanism. Satanism is anti-Semitism. And I wanna, I guess I'll say, because we covered it last week, the reason is, is God decided a long time ago that I'm gonna bring my redemption of this people of earth. Remember the Tower of Babel, you blurry people? The Tower of Babel, he's like all these different nations and all these different, I'm gonna spread them all out, but I'm choosing one language, one people, one future, one bloodline through a man named Abram. 
That's where it's going to come through. And that is the moment, that is the, where it started with Satan himself, with Elohim, with the counsel of God, all those things against not just God himself, but against God's plan and his promises. So when you look at history, there is literally no people group ever that in every generation has had a nation rise up to try to destroy a very specific DNA bloodline than the Jewish people. Throughout history, that has been the case and is currently the case right now. That when you see the, the madness and the insanity of it, it's still, I believe, a demonic force behind the scenes that says, and look, this is not about Netanyahu. This is not Ben Gavir. This is not the Likud party versus whatever. This is literally the people in the land of Israel that God brought them back for a purpose. And I'm going to show you today, as best I know how to, how that is true, why it matters, and what we need to do about it. But let's start with the question that we left off with last week, which is, why are so many Western young adults raging against Israel? Have you seen the news? It's insanity, right? To see cities in Portland and Seattle and New York, to see college campuses, to see that there are Jewish brothers and sisters inside of universities who are unsafe right now, because of violence against them. And of course, Washington Post front page this morning was how the Palestinian people in America are in, in danger because of the hatred coming towards them. Like, from where? You're right, like, I've, I've, they're marching for them. Like, what are you talking about? But be that as it may, that's again part of this narrative. But the question is, why is it that so many young adults, and I wanna tell you a couple of reasons why I think it is, and then I wanna encourage you as far as a follower of Jesus, of how it is that we can absolutely follow Jesus in, in this current moment. So why is it that so many? Well, this is one answer right here. Literally, a third of adults under 30 regularly get their news from TikTok. From TikTok. TikTok, which is not amoral. There are coders who code what you're going to see. We've talked about this before, that when I scroll through this, this is not amoral. There is a coding in place that tells me what I'm going to see next based on a multiplicity of things. But there's a reason why literally this week, Sasha Baron Cohen, Borat, is calling on TikTok to stop this nonsense that he's, in fact, his words are the, the algorithms of TikTok right now are creating more anti-Semitism than leading up to the Holocaust. That, that is happening through, and I've said this before, but it's worth repeating once again, that the algorithms that they experience, if you're a Chinese student growing up in China and you've got TikTok up owned by the Chinese state, their algorithm is different for Chinese children than it is for American children their education, and by the way, obviously, we're talking communist education, so it's not like they're getting a good education, but the point being, what they're sending to our kids, to our generation, is 100% different than what they're getting for their children in their nation. This is an economic invasion of our children right under our own noses, and when that happens, when that much is happening, with that much of a narrative, what you've seen in just the last week is that sympathy is plunging for Israel among the young voters in this country. Now, just a month ago, there's children in here. Things happened on October 7th, 
that are unspeakable in front of other children. Bad things. We know them. There's no sense in saying it in front of kids that are in here. But what happened to those people literally walking into festivals and picking out randomly happened. That is a demonic thing that happened. And because of that, people of the West are saying, ah, we still support these other guys. So it's possible because they're getting their information from the wrong place. Parenthetically, if you're getting your information from MSNBC, Fox, I'm sorry. CNN, you're just getting a narrative, you're not getting news. Personally, what I've done lately, I've found, if if you're a journalist that's been fired from the New York Times, I'm following you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? If Washington Post fired you, I'm following you. Fox News fires you, I want to know what you got to say. So I've literally, you know, y'all have been around me for a long time. I mean, Heslop Snow, I mean, I've been a news junkie forever. I'm subscribing to the New York Times and the Post and all that. And I'm just subscribing specifically to individual journalists now who are no longer beholden to some corporate narrative so that they can tell the truth. So if you're looking for news uh, sites, they are out there. The truth is not unknowable. That's a lie. It's just that the mainstream legacy media sources are not about truth. They're about clicks because clicks are what pay money and the truth is not always commercially viable. So, why? If you're a generation, one of the, things, one of the first things I remember Eric saying to me was that the generation that's coming behind us is one of the most cause-oriented generations in history. The days of people my age and older just writing your check to the church like, it's a, like you're paying your light bill and I'm just going to trust that God's going to do. You know, that was an era of life in, in this world. But the generation coming now is like, that's, I'm not doing that. I want to know if I'm going to give money, what's going to happen with that money? That wall of slaves in the background that have been set free, that's 100% on purpose because we want everybody, by the way, so if you're older, you can learn from the younger generation to give responsibly and not irresponsibly. You can learn from the younger generation for that. And the younger generation can learn to say that, hey, when God asks me to give, that it's not arbitrary or capricious. It's his invitation to us participating in the kingdom of God coming to earth. One of the most cause-oriented generations in history, and what I remember Eric said was, how is it possible that the most cause-oriented organization in history, the church, started hospitals, right? The church has done countless amazing things throughout history. How is it possible that the church is disconnected from the the cause-oriented organization separated from the cause-oriented generation? And the short answer is, is because we've really got our eye off the ball of what God really wants to do with us as Jesus people together. But that said, that's the generation we're in. So the cause-oriented generation combines with what we're being told through social media. Here's the new cause. And we've seen it, right? It's like Roman candle uh, causes. Like it goes off. Everybody runs over here. Whoa, that's great. We are in this cause. And then that goes out and we go to this next one. Here's the new cause. And we go march for that now. Like that the problem with going according to just whatever the latest cause du jour is, is who is the one that says what the cause is. And we've seen how a narrative can be spun where a cause happens and so you end up what's happening right now, which is hundreds of thousands of young people marching, supporting an organization that would kill them if they did the same march in that country. 
I said it kind of glibly, but it is worth repeating. It's the equivalent of chickens marching in support of KFC. It, it's, 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 it's a delusion. It's madness. So the, if you, in a cause-oriented organization or a generation, if you, if you don't give it a moment and learn what is really going on, you are going to get sucked up into marching on behalf of a cause and look ridiculous and look silly because you get caught up in this cause and then it's the next cause and it's the next cause. But here's something that I would say, the the deeper question of why it is that young people are caught up in this. There's a phrase called uh, moral therapeutic deism. Have you heard this phrase? It was coined in 2005. I've heard a couple of pastors mention it. Here's the basic idea. Moral, morality, right? We want to be behind uh, a cause. We want, we're justice oriented people. So that's the morality thing. And so that's the generation. We want to be a part of a cause that's changing the world. Therapeutic is because I do that, it makes me feel better about myself. So it's very tricky because you could find yourself. And by the way, this even happens. I've seen it happen with missionaries going over halfway across the world because they feel like God wants them to save some orphans. And what really happened was they had a real big hole in their heart for their father wound. And they went over there to try to heal it and turned out they're the same person there that they were back here. God never called us to go to a place like that to heal our wounds. He called us to heal our wounds and out of the healing, go to places like that. But in the world that we're in right now, it makes you feel good. And parenthetically, that, that's actually a good thing. Second Corinthians 9, verse 8, God loves a cheerful giver. He was talking about giving money to the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering in famine and persecution. It's supposed to feel good. Like, it's supposed to feel good. He, God could feed him himself, but he said, no, I want you to do it. And it's supposed to feel good to do that. But if you're doing it just for therapy, it doesn't last. And which is where deism comes from is that it's no longer about deistic morality that brings healing to you. It is about right, the morality, the, the justice that's going to make me feel better about myself. And then that becomes their God the deism part. So my God is no longer the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the universe. My God is now whatever cause has come along because it makes me feel better about myself. And every time I go into tweet about this, feeling like I've accomplished something and really all I've done is hit send on a tweet, it makes you feel good. That's moralistic, therapeutic deism. And that is a a phrase that's been coined, but it's 100% accurate. And if you're a young person, hear me say this, it can't save you. 1 Corinthians 13, if I give my life on behalf of the poor, if I pour my life out, if, even if I'm, uh, if I'm martyred, if I, but I don't have love, I have nothing. It's like a clanging symbol. That's what he means. Saving the world without Christ is just another version of therapy. And it doesn't save you if you don't have love. On the other hand, with us going into these nations on our own. It's what Eric or I or any one of you guys that go into the nations, Benny going tomorrow, if you do that out of a heart of love, that's what he's calling for. So the young generation, why are they doing it? I think Jordan Peterson calls it narcissistic compassion. It's a little crunchier, but true. Because the compassion is no longer about the people in Palestine, the compassion is about my own self. I want to feel better about this. And if I do this and rage against it, then I'm going to feel better about it. 
That is why, in my humble opinion, so many people in this country, it's ignorance of what the reality is, and it's a, a, a therapy on their own hearts that is not doing anything other than make themselves feel better for a moment and then get right back onto Instagram to find a new cause because it didn't last. It was like a Roman candle. Second question is, did God replace Israel with the church? I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 11. There is an idea that Israel was so disobedient that God kicked them to the curb and replaced them with the church. Uh, the, the phrase for this in seminary circles is replacement theology. Now, in AD 70, when the temple was destroyed, Right by the time Hadrian comes along and renames uh, Israel to Palestine, if you remember last week, uh, Palestina, that's a Latin word for Philistines. It was not just renaming the country, it was erasing an identity and using the Philistines, which were the original inhabitants of Gaza, I might add. There are no Philistines anymore. But the point is, is that I'm going to call, it'd be like calling America Osama land. Saddam S.A. Like it, whatever the person that has like wreaked damage on your country and caused it, like your arch enemy, I'm going to rename it that. That's where the name Palestine came from. It was given by Hadrian in AD 130 as an insult to the Israeli people while he was scattering them to the nations. And so for almost 2,000 years, there was no nation of Israel on the planet. In fact, Jewish people, brothers and sisters, were scattered to the winds and almost every country they were in became the brunt of persecution, of marginalization, of abuse, of hatred, of, again, anti-Semitism is Satanism. So did God replace Israel with the church? If you didn't see Israel for 2,000 years, if you're Martin Luther, for instance, in the Reformation and you're coming along going, oh, there's no Israel, so that must mean we're now Israel. That must mean that we're Israel because there is no Israel. Uh, on paper, that sounds good, but it's why you have to not let culture teach you theology. Let the Bible teach you theology. Because over and over again, things that we never thought, well, I don't know how that could ever happen, so we have to try to explain it logically. And then God comes along and explains it quite literally. Because one of the questions that he asked, right, in Ezekiel 36 was, hey, you know, can a nation be born in a day? Actually, that was Isaiah. Can a nation be born in a day? The answer turns out, yeah. Turns out it can. Because again, almost 2,000 years, no Israel. May 13th of 1948, no Israel. May 14th, 1948, Israel in a day. It was, a, it was not a rhetorical question. The answer was yes, it could be in a day. And suddenly out of nowhere, there was a nation called Israel. And just like Ezekiel 36 said, I'm going to take you out of all of those nations and I'm going to bring you back to the land. I'm going to gather you from all the countries. You can write this down, go there later, take a picture if you want to remember it. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. So this is speaking of Israel during an exile where they were no longer inside of Israel. They were in Babylon at this point. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, the language of the new covenant. 
I will remove from you your old heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Be careful to keep my laws. And then verse 28, you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament have come true. And when you read this, you think, well, is it possible that he will do that? Before you start second-guessing what God will do, remember what he did do. Remember what he said he would do and did. And then ask yourself a very logical question. Is he going to skip this one? There is no historical moment that this matches. This has not happened. Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39 speaks of a season and a time that has not happened in history yet. So either the Bible's wrong or we can lean on the hundreds of other prophecies of what he said he would do and did and believe that he said he will and we can believe and have faith in that. And I believe that what happened in 1948, Netanyahu aside, I want to be careful to suggest to you that I don't suggest that I support everything that... Uh, whether it's Netanyahu or uh, Ben Gavir, some of the policies, just like I don't with our own country. But what I do know is that God uses imperfect methods to create his perfect will. And there are now 7.1 million Jewish people that have come home to the land of Israel. 7.1 million and counting to the country of Israel. Is the modern state of Israel, the Israel that he talks about in Romans 11? I think so. Is it possible? <laughs> is it possible that a country that was completely wiped off the face of the earth for 2,000 years just happened to recreate in one day? It's possible that that just happened. But be honest with yourself. The chances of that happening are infinitesimal unless God's hand is on it. And I believe I've been there. Some of you have been there with me. Whatever you think about their government stuff on the ground there are Jewish brothers and sisters who have come home to the land just like Ezekiel 36 promised. And I believe that it is because God is gathering his remnant because he is making ready for the bride that is yet to come, you and I. There's things happening right now in the world that are so different. Now let me read Romans 11 to you because I want to give you a theological point to this. I do not want you to be ignorant, verse 25 of verse 11, chapter 11. By the way, if you want a great Bible study, four, maybe five times, 100% four times, I think there's a fifth time, where the Bible, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Find those things and study them. And you'll find that most of them are the things we're the most ignorant about. 1 Corinthians 12, I would rather, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. What is the one thing churches never talk about? Spiritual gifts. 2 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be ignorant of Satan's schemes, right? One thing churches don't like to talk about, the devil. First, or 2 Thessalonians 5, I think, is like, don't be ignorant about the return of Christ. What do churches never talk about? The return of Christ. Is it any accident that the things that the Bible says don't be ignorant about is the thing that we turn out to be the most ignorant about? 
right? Because we don't like talking about them. It's no fun. But I don't want to be ignorant about it, and I don't want you, this is the fourth thing that I know for sure is in the New Testament. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And what does he not want us to be ignorant about? That you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in that way, all Israel will be saved. Let me read that verse one more time. And in that way, all Israel will be saved. Is God done with Israel? Not according to Romans 11, he's not. The deliverer will come from where? Zion. He will turn godless away from Jacob. Godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees. Paul himself, when he said that he was going to be a Gentile, he says, here, I'm a Gentile to the Jews. But if you go to the book of Acts, it's kind of cute because, I mean, he did what I would have done. He was born and raised a Jewish Pharisee. The first place he goes is Jerusalem to preach the gospel because they're going to get it because they know him because it's me, Paul. And they promptly beat the crap out of him and kicked him out of town. He went and spent years in a desert being uh, tutored by the Holy Spirit and discipled before he came back and once again went back to Jerusalem and once again got the crap beat out of him and ended up becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, right? But this is him saying, because look, it's, it's, it's almost like, gosh, is this the right metaphor? So I spent 20 years working in the music and I know you guys know this. I'm tired of me talking about it too. But here's what you know when you've been in a place for a certain amount of time. You guys, especially if you were in the music world, you know me. Or you think you do because you knew this other version of me. You knew the idiot. You knew the mean guy. You knew, I mean, you knew this version of me. But you've been in this town long enough, especially in music, people think you're either an idiot or a genius. And neither of them are right. Right? Like, I'm not either of those things. But it took a while for people to finally say, actually, maybe he's going to be a pastor. I guess, you know, this guy that used to cuss all the time, maybe he is going to be a pastor now. I don't know. Like, it, it just took a minute. But, these, but the point is, you're my friends. Like, it, it, like, my friends, like my family, like, I love you guys, and you know me. They knew him. He loved them. When he talks about his Jewish brothers and sisters, these aren't ethereal people. These are his cousins. These are his coworkers. These are his friends. And he's saying... God's not done with them yet. Now that said, on, when it comes to the gospel, they are enemies on your sake, for your sake. What does Jesus tell us to do for our enemies? Pray for them, love them. But as far as election, this is it, as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, not on account of how awesome they are, not on account of how good they're going to get this, not on account of how moral they are, on account of the fact, the patriarchs, I made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will not break my word. It's not on account of how good they're going to do it. It's on account that I'm a God that keeps my promises. And this is going to sound cheesy and it's going to sound glib, but I promise you'll never forget it. Okay. If it's true for the Jew, it's true for you. If he won't break his promise to the Jewish people, then we can trust that he will not break his promise to us. You see why this matters? 
For God's, verse 29, and boy, I have preached this scripture out of context, first half of my ministry. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. I think the King James, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. And the idea being back in the day that what I preached out of context was if God called you to be a pastor when you're a little kid, he's not going to change his mind. That's just calling on you. Now, that is an accurate statement, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the Jewish people and the gifts and the callings of God that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to all of his descendants that I will not change my mind. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, he's talking to you and me Gentiles, and I know I have Jewish brothers and sisters in here, but us Gentiles, we were also disobedient, irreverent. You've now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that uh, you too, they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. The message of the New Testament, it's in Corinthians, it's in Romans, it's throughout the New Testament, is that God's not done with the Jewish people. For a season as it is right now, it says that they are blinded to Messiah and I've had wonderful conversations with my Jewish friends. One of my favorites is with Zev Orenstein at City of David. And he says, you know, we're going to know, Darren, because when Messiah comes back, we're just going to ask him one question. Is this your first time? <laughs> because for my Jewish brothers and sisters, they're, waiting, they're currently waiting for Messiah. But if you're Jewish and you're in this room this morning, you definitely have to ask a few questions. One, without, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There hasn't been a temple in 2,000 years. How are your sins forgiven without the shedding of blood? That's just a question, right? There's a question about, uh, about Jesus himself. Like he was prophesied, uh, Psalm 22. I mean, I could go through these Psalms. Like there's, there's things that were prophesied that are fulfilled in Christ. Isaiah 54, 55, like when he's talking about the suffering servant and who was marred beyond recognition and by his stripes you are healed. Like the question of is that's describing Messiah. And it's important if you're a Jewish brother to go to the Torah and read those prophecies that you maybe skipped over. Psalm 22, he was pierced, his hands were pierced. It's, it's literally talking about a public execution of the Messiah. Like there are things that, that have not been fulfilled. So ask yourself those questions, but know this. If you're Jewish, God loves you, man. He's not done with you. He has a plan and a purpose. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we, uh, Romans tells us, Jewish people are not grafted into us. We are grafted into the Jewish brothers and sisters. And in a season when maybe they're blinded from who Jesus is and his identity, we can't be arrogant. We mustn't be arrogant. We have to be thankful. Because of that, salvation came to us. Amen. And because of that, now salvation will come to everyone. And I, all I can only say what the Bible says is that all of Israel will be saved. He is not done with the Israeli people. The idea of replacement theology has been around for a long time. There are very intelligent and very smart people who believe this, and they believe that that means that God is done with the Jewish people, and now the church has replaced Israel. That's the belief. Now, you cannot say a, a theology is right or wrong just based on some people's response to that theology. 
For instance, if you're a, a dispensationalist, you believe in the rapture of the church, there are people who would say, well, that can't be true because if you believe in the rapture, then that means you don't care about the environment, you don't care about the world, right? Uh, and, and by the way, that is true of some people who believe and hold to that theology, okay? But that is not what makes that theology right or wrong. What makes the theology right or wrong is whether the word of God says it's right or wrong and your response to it has nothing to do with whether it's true or not. Now that said, one of the main problems I have with replacement theology besides that it somehow skips over Romans 11, and and by the way, I've studied this stuff an irresponsible amount of hours. (laughs) Like I have neglected my family studying this over the years. I'm so fascinated by it. So you can send me some emails with, so have you read this yet? And that, feel free but the chances are that I haven't read it are pretty low. Not trying to be arrogant, I'm just that much of a nerd. Like I've studied all these different approaches and stuff, so I I probably have read it. Feel free to send it anyway. But I did not come to this conclusion lightly. I did not come to it arbitrarily or capriciously. I came to it after countless hours of study and seeking counsel with uh, other brothers and sisters. And so, did God replace Israel with the church? The answer is no not according to this Bible, and the replacement theology idea, Martin Luther held it. And by the way, no, no Israel. I can see how he got to that conclusion, but he was letting the world teach him theology, not the Bible. And what happened to Martin Luther is what happens to some people who believe in replacement theology, which is a, dis, um, a disgust with the Jewish people. I don't know how else to say it. When I read the Twitter feeds of some of my friends who I shall remain nameless, uh, who believe in this theology, it's literally like an Israel hatred timeline. It's the logical conclusion of it, which is why Martin Luther at the end of his life, after the Reformation, the thesis, nailing it to the door, the guy's a hero, and spends the last half of his life talking about how evil the quote, the Jews are. And if you want a fascinating book, Uh, Hitler and the Cross, I cannot remember the author right now, but Hitler and the Cross in 1995, showing how Hitler used the teachings of Martin Luther in his later life to justify what he did in the Holocaust, okay? So I get a little passionate about replacement theology, but I I do recognize that some people believe it and 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 you have not behaved that way and that's totally fine. I just want you to know that that's one of the reasons that I get a little passionate about it. I have too many Jewish brothers and sisters right now reading American Christians' Twitter accounts going, what the heck is going on over there? Now, the last question, the one you came for, the one you paid the money for, the one you pushed through the parking to get into. By the way, if you don't like my answer to any of this stuff, uh, 100% money back guarantee. (laughs) Is this the end? Here's the answer. I don't know. (laughs) But anybody that knows me also knows that won't let me stop me from uh, giving you my opinion. Here's what I do know. Jesus said, I am going to return. When you look at the biblical narrative around what's happening right now, and you start cross-referencing it with what's happening in the world, it's kind of hard to not think 
we might be ramping up to something like we have never seen in our lifetime. There are things that are in place right now that even in the last couple of years were not in place to move something forward like this. Ezekiel 38, after talking about Israel returning to the land, he said this, the Lord The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Gog. Gog, most scholars believe, is not a place, but a person. I think that's important because that person, as is often the case when you look at biblical prophecy or prophetic, not only speaks of a specific person, but as a demonic force behind the scenes. The principalities, the powers, right, that are in the world, the Elohim, the the council of God, like all the, the, when Jesus, remember when Jesus, uh, the the demons and the pig, and they're like, are you going to send us to this place before our time? And he he, he just sent them into the pigs. They went into the ocean, right? Like, what do you think those demons have been doing for the last 2,000 years? Just sitting around twiddling their thumbs? No, there is literally at this point, the prince of the power of the air, Satan is still here for, for a short time longer. But I think Gog, it's, it's the same demonic force that was in the Assyrians, that was in the Babylonians, that was in uh, the Ottomans, that was in Hitler, that is in the radical Islamist of this day because they have one thing in common, they hate the Jewish people. Hate them. That's been around for ever. In fact, I used to work for a company, uh, Brian, uh, Lord, I think Brian's in here, called William Morris Agency, but that wasn't his real name. He changed his name to William Morris in the late 1800s because he was Jewish and there was so much anti-Semitism in the United States that he changed his name so that he could actually make a living here. Okay. This is not new. This has been around for time immemorial, but Gog The land of Magog, most scholars for many reasons believe that this is the land where the Scythians were. It's right around the Caspian Sea. It's in the territory that is modern day Russia. The chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, which is where modern day Turkey exists right now. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaw and bring you out of your whole army, your horses, horsemen, fully armed. It goes down to verse five, Persia, Cush, Put, uh, Sudan, probably Libya, like right in that area. Like those are the modern versions where those are, which with you look at what's going on in Ethiopia, Eritrea, the, the civil war going on between the Islamists there combined with China's financial uh, invasion of East Africa, things that are right now happening in the world that were not happening even five years ago, put even these countries in a position to march armies into Israel because they're suddenly financed by East Asian communist nations. That wasn't like that a few years ago. I started going to East Africa, I guess 15 years ago is the first time. I never saw a single Chinese person on a plane ever. And about eight years ago, I started seeing one Chinese guy here, one Chinese guy there. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, it's like half Chinese guys coming through Doha because the Chinese government has been investing in a deep water port in Kenya right? That goes all the way through Uganda, the plan eventually into Sudan, all the way up into Ethiopia, because they've discovered the minerals that we need for creating electric cars and batteries and phones. Don't even get me started, by the way, when I hear people tweeting about human rights on iPhones made by slaves. You'll forgive me if I'm not quite too sympathetic to your uh, situational social justice. That's, that's an aside. Point is, 
these are nations. Persia, Persia was called Persia up until World War I when it was changed to Iran. Russia, Iran, strengthening their ties and trust, quote unquote, trusting atmosphere. Like the nations literally from Ezekiel 38, you can cross reference them with the evening news in just the last week and see that God, the thousands of years ago said this thing was going to happen against a nation called Israel. We suddenly have a nation called Israel. We suddenly have nations that are specifically spoken of in Ezekiel 37 and 38, lining up around to do exactly what Ezekiel said. And so the question of, is this the end? The answer is we don't know because first of all, this attack so far from Gaza has come from the South. Ezekiel 38 says it's going to come from the North. Okay. That's an important distinction. That said, Starts in the south doesn't mean it ain't going to come from the north. Because if you read Ezekiel 38, you can almost feel it. He says, I'm going to, I think the King James Version says to Gog, I'm going to put a hook in your jaw and drag you down into Israel. Like there's the hesitancy to it, almost like a, we're going, I don't want to be, I don't want anything to do with this, but I'm going to go because it's the only way to get this done. But God's going to put a hook in their jaw, drag them down into Israel from the north. So if what happened this last month with Hamas puts it in a place where finally Russia and, and Persia are going to lock arms and come together, we just don't know. We just don't. What we do know is Matthew 24, Jesus said, the disciples came to him in those first few verses, tell us what will be the, the sign of your coming and the, and the end of the age, which by the way means there's two different questions there. What is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of the end of the age? Those are two different questions. The, his coming and the end of the age are not the same thing, right? They're, they're, they're connected, but they're not the same. But then he starts talking about there'll be wars, there'll be rumors of wars, there'll be, right? Talks about what's going to happen. They're going to hand you over to be hated. And one thing our country has not done in Christendom, and by the way, I speak for many pastors to say, I am sorry that I have not done a good enough job of preparing you and me for hatred on behalf of Christ. I'm sorry that we haven't done that. That's going to change because we've got to be prepared that being hated on behalf of Christ is not an interruption of our work. It is our work. We got to be prepared for that. But he says, he goes on to say that this is going to be like childbirth. Okay, I've been on the business end of four babies being born. Okay? And here's what I know about a baby being born. I do not know the day nor the hour, but I knew the season was changing. She, she no longer can sleep on her side. She's suddenly in a recliner. Like, she's, her ankles are the size of small car tires. Like, the signs <laughs> are changing. Remember that in Atlanta? Yeah. <laughs> we were at a festival in Atlanta in 1997 or something. And I looked down at her ankles. And my wife has the cutest ankles. Uh, but not on that day. They were like, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was like some, like some kid made my wife's legs out of Play-Doh and just <laughs> squished them on top of her. But the, it was, the seasons were coming. It was uncomfortable. You see, you see why Jesus would use the metaphor of childbirth? It's bloody. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's beautiful. Because it's giving birth to something beautiful and new. 
And it's going to require some crushing. It's going to require some squeezing. It's going to require some discomfort. And on the other side of it is the most beautiful thing ever, which is a baby. I've, I, when I say I've been on the business end, there is nothing. A buddy of mine, I, he, actually he's probably not here because his wife might be having a baby right now, told him, man, you're about to see your daughter for the first time and it's going to wreck you for the rest of your life. Like the child seeing your little baby for the first time, it just, it's beautiful. And all of the blood, all of the stuff that you like, that little barrel, like that's like, wow, where's that all going to go? Like it's, but here's why I say that you're thinking this you're being crass, but childbirth is so beautiful. You ladies sign up to do it again. I'll do that a second time. It's, I literally just shoved a ham through my nose and I'm going to do it again. So when you think of how bloody and brutal like this, this next season could very well be, know that it's just like having a baby. Something beautiful is being born into this world. So is it the end? I don't know. <laughs> you guys got my back, man. <laughs> That's why I got to get those click ones. <laughs> You see why I wear those? They don't look good at all, but man, I never do that. They're always on my neck. Why isn't Jesus coming back right now? I don't know about you, but I've prayed that a few times. Why not? Why not right now? Why not? Paul, I'm sorry, Peter, I think it's, I think it's 2 Peter 3, theologian shouted out to me, but he says that you say he's not coming. Why is he not coming? Why, what's he taking so long for? First of all, he says a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So by the way, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was first here. We're in the 3,000th year. It's the third day. So you do with that what you want. But a thousand years is like a day. But he said he's not slow. It's just that he wants everyone to come to repentance. His, it's his kindness that has withheld his return because he wants everyone to come to a saving knowledge of Christ to spend eternity with him. This is a statistic that my friend Josh Howerton at Lake Point in Texas shared that is, it just absolutely stopped me in my tracks. He says that in Africa alone, every day, 16,000 people are coming to trust in Jesus for changing their eternity every day. Yes, that's absolutely worth applauding. So if Jesus comes today, tomorrow, 16,000 people miss out. Give him one more day. Not just every day, the hourly of that, right? What is that, eight or 900 people? So if he comes the next hour, eight or 900 more people will come to Christ in the next hour. In just the time that I was sharing this, in the last minute, every minute in Africa alone, 28 people are coming to faith in Christ and changing their eternity right now. Every minute he delays is a minute that 28 more people from just Africa are coming to faith in Christ. That doesn't include Asia. It doesn't include America. It doesn't include South America. It's just Africa alone. Why is he not returning right now? Because one more. What did he say when the fullness of the Gentiles is complete? That means at some point we're going to reach peak Gentile. And by the way, if you're the last one, go ahead, let's just, can you just say yes so we can get over, you know what I mean? If that's you, <laughs> I just, I'm saying. Um, you know why he's waiting? 
because you have a prodigal that needs to come home. Maybe there's one more. You have a brother or sister who's, who's away from Christ. Maybe just one more. Maybe it's them. One of the things that Josh shared, which is, he used a little poetic license, but it was, he's like, Jesus said, I don't even know the day or the hour of my return. And he's, just, he's like, I can see Jesus, his white horse, getting his tattoo ready and his sword and ready to go. And, and again, God holding him back saying, no, 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 no. There might, there's one more. It's not time yet. There's one more. And I want to offer that opportunity to you this morning. Are you the one more? Are there 10 more in this room? I don't know. But don't miss this opportunity because at some moment while you're, you woke up on this side of earth today, that means you have one more chance. You have a chance right now. There's still a chance for you, but there's coming a moment when the horse leaves or when you breathe your last breath and you've made your choice. Even if by not making a choice, you made your choice. And Jesus' invitation to all of us is, follow me. Trust in me. And I want to ask as we pray, and I, I let you out of here this morning, that you consider that, and consider you and your relationship with Christ this morning. If you've never put your trust in him, I want to invite you to do that. I'm not going to ask you to come down. I'm just going to pray for you. But look, if you've never have, and this is a moment where you're going to pray for the first time, Jesus, please, I'm calling on your name. I believe that you are the son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. I want you to pray that right where you are. And then, I know this is going to sound cheesy, but could you send an email, infoconduitchurch.com. Prayer warriors will 100% want to pray with you to welcome you into the kingdom. We'll have prayer people out at the table like we always do, but I'm going to pray for you. And if that's you where you're sitting and you have not trusted in Christ, Jesus, like Jesus has been held back another day specifically for you. Father, You are knocking on the doors of hearts this morning. You are drawing, Holy Spirit, you are drawing brothers and sisters into the kingdom this morning. I pray that you, Lord, would speak, that they would answer, and that they would forever, just like us, get to join in on this eternity that you've promised for us. I'm so grateful for prophecies that prove that you are who you said you are. You didn't ask us to trust you blindly. So this morning, for those that are calling on your name for the first time, Lord, give them the courage to reach out for prayer this morning, to reach out, to be welcomed into your kingdom, and to begin a new life in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now look at me. There are these metal strips above these doors. They, they erase everything you heard. You forget it all. So if you said a prayer, I want a relationship with Christ, before you walk out that door, drop that email while you still have the courage and the memory to do it, and someone will be ready to pray with you soon. So stand to your feet. God bless you guys. I love you. And we will see you. Even though I'm not preaching, I'll be here next weekend. So I'll see you next week.